Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a Rocker Room production. Hello and welcome to the latest Love Tennis podcast. My name is George Belshaw. I work for metro.co.uk. I'll soon be joined by James Gregg from the Eye and Calvin Betton, British tennis coach. Calvin has had some very exciting news this week. I don't know if you call it news per se or just his life, there's general news in his life is that he has been vaccinated which I think we can all agree is excellent news. I'm just praising your vaccination Calvin. Yes, how's it going? Yeah, good mate. We're happy yeah. you're alive. Can you, praise, can you praise someone for getting the vaccine? I suppose well, it was I started, aren't we? Yeah, I started saying it was good it was Calvin's good news. I wasn't actually quite sure if that. I, mean, is it, I suppose it is good news to a degree, but you know, it's kind I mean, of. I mean, uh, so we'd rather he had it than he didn't. Yeah. Um, you know, being a vulnerable group because of his age, I don't think it's important that he has. Yeah. It. Um, <laughs> what wasn't great news at about midnight on Saturday night when I was laying in bed <laughs> shivering and <laughs> like some like a scene out of Train Spotting, but yeah. With, yeah. without the but without the narcotics. I watched did, that did for the first time. Wait, you've never seen Trainspotting? I, I only watched it for the first time oh. like two weeks ago, honestly. I've been meaning to watch it for years and just, I, I don't know how, it was brilliant though, it's a great film. It's, it's very... uh, so quite a lot of it is filmed around where I used to live in Edinburgh. So it's really quite weird watching it and being like, oh, oh, that's the bull. Oh, that's a nice pub. Oh, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's basically how, I don't know if you've ever read any Ian Rankin novels, but they're all based, they're all set in Edinburgh. And he basically makes money off the fact that people read the books going, oh, he's talking about a street that I know. Yeah. <laughs> I always tell the, the weird thing, because again, I'll refer to my age again, because I'm a bit older than you boys, but when Trainspotting came out, there was this big thing about how it um, sort of promoted drug use. Mm. Um, and anybody mm. who's seen Trainspotting would think that absolutely nobody who has seen what it does <laughs> yeah. to do that. There's not much well, glorification it? of it, is there? Yeah. 
Uh, I suppose it's like the classic dread film any time. It looks quite fun for 20 minutes and then <laughs> it really is really fab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, maybe this isn't so good. But anyway. I mean, it, it does, it does, you know, train spotting has a lot of brilliant moments. My favourite bit is when they go to the countryside and, you know, they just hate it. And yeah. he says it, the great speech about it's shite being Scottish. <laughs> Some people hate the English. I don't. They're just wankers. <laughs> We, we were colonised by wankers. Um, anyway, we've been distracted early on. Let, let's move on since that's why we're, we're here. And we've got lots of exciting things to talk about. We're going to talk about Roger Federer. Uh, Garbini Muguruza has picked up a title, so has Daniil Medvedev. Uh, we'll talk about Eugenie Bouchard, which I know excites a lot of people for a number of reasons. Um, and a little bit of, uh, I can't say his name, but we'll talk about the Danish fella as well. But we have to start with the Swiss fella, uh, Roger Federer, not Stan Wawrinka or anyone else, in fact. Um, he is back. Uh, two matches out in the Middle East. They picked up a win against Dan Evans, a very entertaining one. Um, he was then knocked out by Nikolaus Basilashvili, who was who went on to win the title, by the way, um, in another pretty entertaining match. George, we'll start with you. That The Evans match, you know, it was two, and two hours, 26 minutes off the top of my head. We knew it was going to be entertaining because they're quite similar styles. They obviously know each other very well because they've been practicing together for a couple of weeks in the Middle East as well. Did, did it live up to everything you wanted it to? Well, it lived up to my prediction from last week that Federer would win. So, yes, that did live up to Wow. Congratulations oh. on picking the Well, you, you guys were doubting it. And, All you know, right, Greg Rosetsky over there. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I was impressed by how Federer served, I would say. Um, I, I thought he picked that up pretty metronomically again. Um, I thought Evans played a pretty decent match as well. It was quite entertaining. You know, it's not typically a great matchup for Dan in terms of Rogers just slightly better at every aspect of Dan's game than he is um, and is taller and got a good serve. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily match up that well for him. But you could tell... They've been playing a lot of points together. Dan was really aggressive on the forehand, which I know um, we were talking about in the chat quite a lot this week. Um, yeah, it was good. And, and you know, Roger, he, he then came back the next day, played a pretty good set against Basilashvili, then looked kind of fatigued, as you'd expect, and has then obviously pulled out of um, Dubai the next week. So kind of what you'd expect but I think Roger well he was very happy you know spoke to him straight after both matches he was very happy he said he would have been happy losing he's very happy to get a win under his belt and said he had more messages for this match than he'd get for winning a Grand Slam so it felt like a big (laughs) occasion for him Um, and it it was good to watch him again wasn't it I mean even if he wasn't perhaps at his slickest it it was really good to see him back on court I liked that he said afterwards someone said how long would it take you to get out when he lost to Basilashvili he said I'm already over it you yeah. know, and, and he kind of had been briefing along those lines coming in. He said, my expectations are so low for this match. And he said, my season starts on the grass, you know, Haller and Wimbledon. That And that clearly is, you know, this is going to be a year of prioritisation for Roger. And clearly when, you know, the Australia thing's weird because I think there's a couple of reasons he didn't go to Australia. But he seems to be briefing that physically he didn't think he was ready. Um, I don't think that's true. But anyway, um and maybe this is proof that, that it was true. Um, Calvin, on the other side of the net, you know, it was pleasing to see Dan going toe-to-toe with him. And for, Well, I don't know what, how you felt, but we talked about the forehand. It was nice to see him 
that he can do that. It's not a game we're used to seeing him playing, is it? No, I thought it was it was noticeable, especially early on. There he was really going after that forehand, um, and it's good to see that. I don't know if it's fair to say that he's added something to his game there, but it's it sort of definitely had three or four, five percent more pace on it and more power. And he, he definitely felt like he looked like he felt he could win the match, um, even to the extent of felt like maybe he should win the match. I think he was a little bit unlucky to an extent. I think he, well, I think it's definitely fair to say that he played him a day too early. Um, and if he could have got him the day after, as, as Bashalas really did, I think he'd probably have beaten him as well. Um, well, I'm pretty sure of that, actually. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to take away from it. But as Dan pointed out himself, it's just in his nature, the way that he is, he'll say that it doesn't really matter because he didn't win. Um, but hopefully, if he can bring that form this week in Dubai, I think you'll definitely be seeing him, a lot of him later on in the week. Yeah, I, I was just going to pick up on that, exactly that point. You know, from Dan's perspective, that felt like a bad loss. And for me, that's only a good thing. Um, for where he's at mentally, where he thinks he should be at. And, you know, there were definitely positives to take. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, Dan will look at that and think, this guy's not played for a year and I've lost that. And, you know, he feels he can win any match at the minute. And uh, I think he's getting pretty capable of winning almost any match now. Um, You know, we've seen it. We spoke about him last year, blowing some quite good positions. Um, I think there was a match against Vavrinka, wasn't there, where he had match points. There were a few matches where he was kind of getting in those positions to win it. But, you know, I think there's only positive things to say about Dan. And for me, I think he'll be top 20 by the end of the year. I really do. Yeah, I think it's definitely, there's definitely a likelihood of that, um, especially with the rankings in the strange place that they are. He, there are periods in the year where he doesn't have a whole lot to defend um, and he can really go after that. I thought something else I found interesting from last week was sort of Federer's, I don't know whether this was just me, but Federer's tone in what he had to say, I thought was quite different from Murray's. Uh, Whereas Murray's sort of gone all out positive in, I know I'll be fine. I know I'm competing well. There's no problem. I'll I'll be winning things. He's even talking about winning Wimbledon. Federer sort of, I don't know if he's sort of a bit trepidatious, but some of his lines I thought were a bit sort of on the other side of the coin where he was saying, if I'm still losing second round in six months, then I'll know my time is up mm. or, and things like that. And, and just sort of very much a let's wait and see. Whereas Murray has always been a, it'll be great. Don't, I, I know it'll be fine. I wonder if that is partly to do with the press attention that's on him. Um, you know, the, the kind of narrative, I hate to talk about media narratives because there isn't one, but there's a lot of people saying, will Murray retire now? Because, we're so far into his comeback, you know, I'm trying to think when his first surgery was or when his first hip problem was, we're three years into that comeback. Whereas with Federer, we're not as far into that comeback. So I think people haven't said the R word. Whereas with Fe- with, with Federer, uh, uh, with Murray, sorry, I think they absolutely have. So I think there's partly that he doesn't feel he has to rail against anything. But also I think that Federer kind of has acknowledged that he is not far away from retirement. Yeah. And, you know, he, he. I think he talked about his kids. There's a really good line, actually, in the BN Sport interview before the tournament. And he said, oh, you know, uh, tennis isn't... Uh, I care about tennis just as much as I care about my other my life. And then he went, no, no, actually, I care about life a little bit more than tennis. And there was, like, there was a conscious mindset there where he was like, I want to play mixed doubles with my kids when I'm 50. George, you were going to say? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, like, comparing Federer and Murray, I mean, the 
the two obvious differences to me are that you know Federer is at an age where pretty much every other player his age has retired, whereas mm. Murray is the same age as Novak Djokovic, who's world number one. You know, there's, yeah. there's that initial kind of difference of Murray will look at what other guys are doing, and Murray's a fit guy. I mean, obviously we know there's limitations with the hip, but you know, you look at him now, you're not thinking, oh, there's going to be. You know, if there wasn't that hip thing, you wouldn't be thinking, oh, there's going to be massive physical issues with him. Yeah. The other thing I'd say is that I just feel that Murray has a bit more of a sense of lost time than Roger. Um, I know Roger's had two stints out, really, um, since his professional career, but otherwise has done pretty well injury-wise. Like If you look at who has the record for attending the most Grand Slams in a row, I think Feliciano Lopez took that off Federer a couple of years ago at Wimbledon after he'd lost um, his knee um, once he'd had that knee injury break uh, before coming back to win Australia in 2017. So, you know, Rogers had a pretty good run, whereas Murray, you know, he's kind of lost a lot of his, what could have been his prime years, particularly when you look at Novak. So I, I do think there's a bit of a mental difference there as well. It's kind of fascinating to see them both making similar steps in the game at the same time. Now, much as we wish it weren't that way and that things were different, it's, it's really interesting to have these two very different characters but who've competed at the highest level kind of almost at the same stage. Um, they have something in common now that they've both pulled out of Dubai next week. Uh, Roger saying that he's uh, not fit enough. He, he did look weary. Um, in that second match against Basilashvili, and frankly, even in the third set against Dan. I was just going to say, has a tournament ever had a worse string of luck than Dubai in those well, three days? Well, I mean, I mean Rafa Nadal was never in. He was just... Well, he, he had a wild card. <laughs> well, he was offered a wild card, right? Well, he was still sitting on it two days right. before. I mean, do you know what I mean? Like, a, <laughs> that, that, that was still just, you know... I just can't remember three such high-profile players pulling out within 40, 48 hours. I mean, I mean, Murray's got a good reason to. Um, Kim has yeah, yeah. Uh, given birth for the fourth time. Congratulations to them. Uh, so he's going to go spend some time, although not too much time, um, at nope. home because he's going to head to Miami about a week later. So I, I don't know. I mean, my sister's had a second child and, you know, we were all very excited, but equally it's like, you know, seen this trick before, so... Maybe once you get to number four, you, you go back and you're like, yeah, still a baby. Lovely. Well done. I'm back to work. Uh, so I don't blame him. But yeah, good, good luck to him. Shame not to have either of them uh, in Dubai, as you mentioned, George. Uh, I'll tell you who is in Dubai with a title behind him is Nikolos Basilashvili, who, I mean, George, you said you, you called him an odd player. I mean, he does just whack it, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a really funny player. I remember well, my first recollections of properly seeing him in a big match was against Nadal at the French Open, I think 2017. I think yeah. he won like two games in three hours or something, and it was awful. I was thinking, this guy is never, I don't know, how on earth has he made the top 100? I, I know Rafa on clay is a bit of a funny thing, but it, it really was bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, he's he's really stepped up since, to be fair. He's, he's become, he's had a very bad year i mean off the court there's obviously been some quite serious issues going on um he's facing trial in georgia um for domestic abuse charges which have just been pushed back and pushed back due to covid so um you know he's kind of in a I suppose a similar boat to alexander zverev apart from the fact he's not as 
bigger name um mm. so it gets kind of less attention um but you know it, it this <laughs> was a surprise week really because he's been out of form horribly but before that he, he had developed into a good top 50 player it's funny i mean calvin you you might want to come in on this but it seems that there are a certain type of player is responding to this kind of odd stop start very different season and and it's it's the big hitters more than the the grinders, which is the opposite. I thought the big hitters would come out and have no rhythm and just not be able to do it, and you'd get grinders winning left, right, and centre. But you know, Jeremy Shardy's playing like a dream. Nicholas Vasilashvili's won a title. It, it's the big hitters who seem to be going well. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Um, and um, Karatsev as well, obviously came yeah. out of um, came out of it pretty well, hasn't he? But. Hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's more that they're they're probably just pretty set in their way, in their sort of they're pretty comfortable with their game style. This is what I'm going to do, and it doesn't really make any difference. Even a pandemic can't get in the way of that. I'm going to hit the ball hard <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Whereas I think the grinders, the, the sort of the baseliners, they probably tend to f- need to feel a bit more, need to be on court a bit more, and sort yeah. of find their rhythm and and that kind of thing within the ma- within the matches. Um, but I mean, I guess look, you know, Djokovic just won a slam, and he's probably <laughs> yeah. more more along that sort of pathway, isn't he? So yeah, he grabs um, a bit. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just maybe more of the, you know, and I guess as well the guys from Karatsev and Bashilashvili, I don't really know how to present his name. Um, they're they are from the sort of Russia and the states around there, and we do have to question whether they ever stop doing anything. Um, in those countries, I suppose. So, you know, maybe they can just carry on practicing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm glad you're talking about carrying on practicing there, rather than. You know, <laughs> um... I, was, I was wondering where we were going there. <laughs> get the, law, get the <laughs> lawyers out. Uh, yeah. No, 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 it was, no. No, definitely not that. It's all right. That's right. We're actually not on air anymore, so that's, that's the end of that. <laughs> um, uh, on the subject of Russian and, and Soviet success, uh, Aslan Karatsev did win an ATP title this year, this week, sorry, um, doubles with Andrei Rublev uh, in straight sets. They beat Marcus Daniel and Philip Oswald uh, in Qatar. Uh, Calvin, you mentioned it in the chat during the week. It's, Andrei Rublev is one of the most successful guys at ATP 250 and 500 level I can remember in a long time but he also plays doubles every week doesn't it I mean can you kind of outline just how rare that is at that level yeah nowadays it's it's completely strange the sort of double setup has really really changed since the sort of mid to late 90s where the doubles players would always back then they'd always be singles players ranked about sort of 50 to 100 in the world but Mm. they'd be sort of specifically doubles players they'd be guys who'd serve volley in singles they'd always return well Whereas yeah. sort of over the last 10 or 15 years, you've now got these guys who just play doubles and that's all they do. Um, they don't play singles at all. And mm. equally, the best singles players hardly ever play doubles. But Rublev mm. plays, he plays pretty much every tournament. He usually plays with Hatchinov. Mm. Um, but I don't know, was Hatchinov in a different tournament this week? Um, uh, yeah, he or... was in France, I think. He was right, in okay. Okay. And it's different. I mean, something that needs saying about the doubles as well is that Louis Kaye was on a, um, a podcast last week, I'd heard, um, who's the, the sort of British doubles guru, if you will. And he was saying that now 55% of male players are serving and staying back in doubles, which is the highest that he's ever seen it. Um, so I think that would sort of indicate why players such as Rublev are doing well in doubles. 
I, I did notice that actually. I mean, I don't watch a lot of doubles. You know, I try and watch as much tennis as I can, but it's usually singles. And I, you know, used to watching doubles in in usual formation, and it, it, it does seem yeah. like more of a more of a baseline game than than it ever was. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was interesting. There's also we should shout out to Lloyd Glasspool, by the way, who also won an ATP title um, last week in France uh, with, and I'll try and say this correctly, Harry Heliovara. Um, the finish. Yeah. Uh, Do they get anywhere near that, Calvin? Uh, yeah, Harry Heliovara is how, how you present it. I think, uh, pr- pronounce oh, it. I think. Um, but, um, yeah, he's done well as Lloyd because he's he sort of made the move to doubles. <laughs> About maybe about a year ago, I think um, he made a lot of challenger finals, and it took him a while to get his first win at challenger. And he mm. won his first challenger, I think, a couple of weeks ago, and then he's just followed it straight up with winning his first ATP um, mm. event. So he's going to be right in the in the mix for Davis Cup, I would think, going forward. There's not mm. many Brits that actually win, you know, sort of Jamie and um, Jamie and Scott's going. Skubsky, yeah, and Salisbury, obviously, and then I think Lloyd will. There's Johnny O'Mara as well. I think Lloyd's probably around about that now, or he'll go up mm. to around about top 100. Yeah, yeah, he's Br- just Br- on the edge of the top 100. Brummy lad as well, so always God, good. Yeah, he's, never never honestly, he's always been able to, he's, he's always played good doubles as Lloyd. He won the NCAA college tennis um, doubles. Oh, wow. um, when he was at college, so he's always been able to play, but he's done it. He had a decent singles career. He's got a big serve um, and gets around gets around the net well. So mm. um, I think he just sort of had he'd had enough of singles, wasn't getting the results he wanted, and moved to doubles about a year ago. Mm. And why not? As a commentator yeah. once said. Um, but speaking of doubles players, by the way, Pierre Huguet-Zerbo made an ATP final in singles, which is just like whenever he 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 strikes me as the sort of Kristina Mladenovic of the men's game where. He just plays the singles because he's there anyway, and you might as well get on court and have a hit. And all of a sudden, he finds himself. And I mean, keep Cam Norrie uh, on the way and a couple of others. So uh, credit to him, but he he was beaten. Go on, George. Well, I was just going to say on that point that he it always amused me. Um, he a, a couple of years ago. He sacked off doubles, didn't he? He said, I'm not playing yeah. doubles anymore with Mahu and I'm focusing yeah. on my singles career. And then that, <laughs> that ended up in a bit of a row when he then teamed up with Murray at Wimbledon. And, you know, the next slam, he's back with bloody Mahu. He's just given up this, <laughs> the whole singles. Yeah, no, and Mahu had also retired. Who yeah. retired? How many times has <laughs> Mahu retired? Like five yeah. times. Though. And split. He's like retires and splits up with her bear twice a year, every year. <laughs> <laughs> and they're always there. Oh, oh, oh two Mahu and her bear. Semi final. I mean, why, why are we surprised? Why are we surprised yeah. that the French doubles team is drama central? I mean, yeah. we should, we shouldn't be surprised at all, really. Um, yeah. Let's move on because I want to talk about Garbina Muguruza. Uh, she won the title uh, in the Middle East this week as well. She's probably. Uh, the most informed player on the WTA at the moment, although as Calvin pointed out when I said this on Twitter, Naomi Osaka is not in bad nick either. Uh, but nevertheless, she did have match points against Osaka when they met at the Australian Open. Muguruza is in some serious form. Um, she picked up a couple of serious wins as well, beating Arena Sabalenka, which I think is probably the most impressive one because if you don't think Muguruza is the form woman in the world at the moment, you probably think Sabalenka is. Uh, so to beat her, she then beat Elise Mertens. She also beat, well, she thrashed Iga Sviontek, by the way, 6-4, six, 6 love, um, and beat Barbara Krejcikova in the final, who, again, is another 
Is she not the world number one doubles player, or am I getting her confused with Strickover? I absolutely am. Never mind. Um, anyway, the point is, Garbini Muguruza is on absolute fire, George, isn't she? Yeah, she is. Um, I think we've all long said that Muguruza really should be always in the top three women in the world at the minute. Um, you know, in terms of quality and what she has to her game. I think the interesting thing to watch, I would say, I mean, there's many interesting things to watch in women's tennis at the minute, but I'm interested from my boring life perspective to keep an eye on the number one battle between, I think it could end up being between her and Osaka. Um, And it'll be interesting to see how well Osaka does on the... um, more natural surfaces, as you might call them. Um, Muguruza. I call them the natural surfaces. (laughs) Like a hardcore is not natural. Clay. Right. (laughs) Makes sense, doesn't it? You can find clay, can't you, anywhere? Clay. (laughs) Clay's a natural thing. Anyway, look. Don't kill my my vibe. I'm pretty sure people do call them that. Or something like that. Anyway. I've I've never heard them referred to that. If, if, if I'll Google have, it once I've finished my discussion. Let us, let us know on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod. Have you ever heard of the natural surfaces? If they're not called that, that's a great name. <laughs> I'm, I'm back in there. I look forward um, to the unnatural swing at the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, not, moving slightly away from that. I um, derailed your point. It did slightly derail it. The man made um, you know, circuit. <laughs> I, I'm so sure this is the thing. I can't believe I've just made that up. Anyway, whatever. come on, George. Um, power She, you know, I think when you look at what's weak in Osaka's game at the minute, it is the fact she's not done it on clay and grass or the natural surfaces, as they're well known. Um, whereas Muguruza has picked up titles at the French Open at Wimbledon. And she's playing good hardcourt tennis as well. I think she's been to three finals in her last four um, Mm. events. And the other event, she had match points against the player who won the title in Osaka. Um, So, you know, she's got this consistency. She's got over the line in winning a title again, because that actually was missing. That was her first title, I think, since April last year. Um, So there had been a bit of a wait for her. But, you know, I've always said this about her. I mean, she's got such a big game, such a good presence. She's actually really good net player as well when she comes in. Um, and she's good on all surfaces. She really should be one of the top three women in the world. And I, I think she's got a good chance of ending the year world number one if she carries on like this. Big if, though. Yeah. And she's, she's obviously got Conchita Martinez um, in her corner as well, who she's kind of paid a lot of, um, a lot of tribute to, kind of uh, giving her a bit more, like, like mental stability, I think, and a, a bit more like just kind of even naturedness, which is probably not something you would necessarily associate with a, a Spanish tennis player at, at the best of times. I'm not, I don't know. Maybe I'm being harsh on that, but she certainly seems to be more even handed. I, I also find her a very refreshing player to watch. Uh, women's tennis has changed a lot in the last couple of years, but there was a period, you know, if you go back to when Muguruza won Wimbledon in 2017, there weren't many players coming forward a lot. You didn't have a lot of women who were, you know, hitting the ball big and, and willing to come in on short balls and things. Whereas now, I guess, the game's changed a bit. You've got Muguruza, you've got Sabalenka, you've got Svantec, you know, all sorts. Um, and obviously, you've got Naomi Osaka, who is, you know, a power hitter of the highest order. So in that sense, I guess things have changed a bit. But she's part of that 
that kind of resurgence. And, and she's only 27. You know, she's won two Grand Slams. She's still got plenty in her. And you're right. I, th- I think she's a top three player in the world right now if the WT ranking, WTA rankings remotely reflected who the best players in the world were at the moment. And I don't hear any arguments, which means James has got one right for once, which I'm delighted about. And I'm also right about the natural surfaces. <laughs> so we're all right here. Right, okay. Well, well, well done, George. Well, the right. thing is, I'm I definitely not right on according to Google. No one, no one seems to have ever said this before. But George, George is now going to write about. George is going to write about three articles now, just to sort of get it yeah. to, to get trending on uh, Google. I'm going I'm to be using the word natural surfaces for the next few months until it becomes mainstream. Don't you Horrible. Know, You're going to try and get it into the canon. That's not your thing. Um, we'll look at one of the other title winners because it was something I was bad at doing last week, running through some title winners. But Daniil Medvedev needs no introduction. Uh, it's his 10th title. Uh, he obviously moved up to number two, breaking a record that we flagged up. But obviously, you have to mention records when they happen, not just before they happen. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> um, so congratulations to Daniel Medvedev for, as we said would happen, and praised him for doing uh, breaking for <laughs> hegemony. In so he is, in case you missed it last week, he is the first player not called Novak, Andy, Roger, or Rafa. Uh, to be in, ranked in the top two in the men's game since 2005, uh, Leighton Hewitt being the last man to do that. Uh, is he someone who can go to number one, George? I, I can't remember if this is one of your sneaky predictions, as you like to say. <laughs> Always got so many sneaky predictions. Um... You're, you're so well-hedged. You're the most well-hedged man in Britain. Like, you have every <laughs> angle covered somewhere, somehow. Got to be ready. 2021 number one, one of your hedges. I think there's a pretty good chance he will be by the summer. That's by that's, the summer. That's, that's committed as I'm going. Yeah. So if you break it down, there's two thousand points between Novak and Daniel now, or just over. Mm. Um, Daniel really has no points to defend. Like he did very badly on the clay last year. Um, and obviously it was like a short didn't it win at Monte Carlo or make final Monte Carlo Monte Carlo didn't happen I thought we were talking yeah but it's the year before though isn't it that'll affect him yeah yeah. no he didn't make the final though did he I don't think so I think he beat he beat Novak but didn't actually get to the final I think he only got a semi-final and that'll only be worth 50% anyway anyway, look okay he, he, he doesn't have I promise you he doesn't have much he got to the semi-final in Barcelona uh, in 2019, which are points that he is defending because of the bizarre way the system works at the moment. He's defending 50% of those, though. So he's only I defending... No, they only keep fifty oh. percent of those from twenty nineteen. That's what I mean. So it's actually right, not okay. as much as you even think because it's only a two fifty, isn't it, Barcelona, or is it five hundred? Either way, whatever. It's not that many points when you compare okay. to Novak reaching the final of the French Open and winning a Masters on clay and holding Wimbledon. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, but like... the reason the reason that Daniel Medvedev doesn't have many clay court points to defend is that he's bad on clay. But is he that bad on clay? This is the question. I don't think he is that bad on clay. I've seen him play quite well on clay the last couple of years. I just don't, you know, he's had the odd good match. I, I think he'll be quite dedicated to be good on it. And I've seen him play well on grass as well. I'm not, I'm not saying, look, I'm not saying 
he's going yeah. to rise to world number one. But what I'm saying is, if you look at how Novak's going to treat his schedule and pull back from stuff, he's going to have to win everything he plays, which I, I don't think is necessarily a guarantee. I don't necessarily think he'll turn up and win Rome, for example, or be that bothered about it. I think he'll be focused more on the French. Um, will he win Wimbledon? Probably. I don't know. Maybe Roger <laughs> yeah. will be fit by then. I don't know. But I'm just saying, Medvedev has, doesn't have to do that much to get a decent wedge of points. He just I'm has to have sure, one week. I'm sure, I'm sure you're right, George. But, you know, he doesn't have to do much to get a decent wedge of points. Some would question whether he can, because he, he is on a six-match losing streak on clay. Um, he's lost his last six matches on the uh, natural red uh, <laughs> against... I, I, just, just back to the natural thing. I've, I've remembered why I'm calling them the natural thing. I've, I've, got, okay. I've got the good answer. Right. Yeah. You can have synthetic and clay and grass courts. Do you ever have a synthetic hard court? No. It's because you have natural clay and grass and then synthetic and hard right. courts are always hard courts. That's why they're natural surfaces. Well, well, a synthetic clay court is not actually synthetic clay. It's, it's a synthetic grass coloured orange. Yes, but you make a fake one. <laughs> yes, yeah, literally but you can't what make it a... is. Yeah, when, yeah, but you people, can't make it. When, <laughs> okay, but I'm just people saying. People say it's. Well, it always cracks me up in this country <laughs> when people say we've. It's a. Um, what what do they call it? Artificial clay. It's like it's literally an astroturf court <laughs> that is orange. That's what okay. it is. Wow. Well, you, you, and, it bears, and also, it bears no resemblance to clay playing on it either. It's light yeah. and quick. But okay. but anyway, but the, but the point is. You can't no, have a synthetic. It? You can't have a synthetic hardcore. That's all I'm saying. Okay. So, so is the natural. I, I, I'll, tell you, I'll, tell you one, I'll tell you. I'll tell you something, George. I don't think you know Medvedev cares what it's made out of. He doesn't like playing on it uh, because he prefers last, the unnatural surfaces. He prefers the unnatural surfaces. <laughs> his last six results have included defeats to Dominic Team, which we'll forgive him for, uh, Guido Pella, Nick Kyrgios, Pierre Huguez Herbert. Ugo Umber and Martin Fuksovics. Now, all decent players, I think. I mean, decent, maybe. Not elite. Not players that Daniil Medvedev should be leading to. On one, one, of them's only, one of them's only a part time tennis player, so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's harsh on Pierre Huguet's hairbear, but you're right. And Nick Kirov's on the <laughs> <laughs> look, look, my point is he doesn't have a good record on clay, so he's going to have to make something change. I know that he's a guy who does have a, an impressive gradient. You know, we saw he turned himself into a very good hardcore player, not quite overnight, but in quite a short space of time. Calvin, do you see him as being someone who can turn into a good clay court player, or, or is he too fundamentally flawed in some area? No, I can see, I, I can both see why he'd be good and why, why he may struggle on it, because he's. As we spoke about before, the movement on clay is different and mm -hmm. he's very tall and the sort of overly tall guys who are a bit lanky for a better word, they tend to struggle with the change of direction which you need on clay, being able to sort of grip and change balance, change your weight of movement, that sort of thing is difficult for taller players which is why you get players with a lower centre of gravity doing well on it. But on the flip side of it, his game style is very conducive to doing well on clay. He doesn't miss balls. Um, and he hits a length. Mm. So, and he's just a good tennis player as well. You know, let's be honest. It's not like I, I can't see him. He's not going to be world number two and losing first round and losing six matches in a row on clay this year. I won't think. 
I'd be surprised mm-hmm. if he wins the French Open. I wouldn't be surprised if he's in the semis. Yeah, yeah. I, <clears throat> I think that's more the point, really. Is I, I think, if assuming he plays a relatively full schedule, I find it hard to believe he won't have, you know, the odd semi-final in there or the odd final at one of the smaller ones. And he doesn't need to do that every week to close that yeah. gap quite quickly. And Novak needs to be pretty flawless again, which he might not be. So that's more the point, you know. We'll see how he goes. But I've seen him play well on grass as well. Um, he's got a good. He does have a good serve, like Medvedev, when he when he's on it, and that can carry you on grass. Um, yeah. It's very flat yeah. as well. Yeah. So he, you know, he he does have the game. I think he will adapt to both, whether he does it this year or not. We'll see. Mm. But yeah, it's one to watch. Anyway. And he has a, he has a slightly less bad record on grass. Like he has beaten some top fifty players on grass. Which he, he hasn't necessarily done a huge amount of on clay, so you know. And he played he played queens a couple of times, so there's like a there's a willingness to improve there. I think, you know, I think actually I'm just looking at his record now. In 2019, he played Stuttgart and Queens, and then came to Wimbledon. So he's he's clearly got it in his head that he wants to to be a decent grass court player. He he played one of the most painful matches I think I've ever watched there was actually it was a decent match but it was so painfully long against Gilles Simon at Queens <laughs> that as you can imagine was just an absolute slugging fest I'm pretty sure he lost that and did, didn't Simon did. play Feliciano Lopez in the final yes um, in, in a real throwback final that could have been played yeah. in 2007 <laughs> when Lopez also won the uh, doubles with Big Andy what a week yes, yes. what a week um, I mean, that feels like it happened in a different universe, never mind a, a different year or a different season. Um, but that's just kind of the world that we live in at the moment. Um, let's move on before we get distracted by the world that we live in at the moment, which realistically we can all forget about. Um, I mentioned it at the top of the show. Um, Eugenie Bouchard uh, back in a final. She was beaten by Sarah Cerebes Tormo. Uh, I've almost certainly butchered that, but I'm going with it. Uh, in Guadalajara, the Abierto de Zapopan. Um, I believe the name of the tournament is. Uh, straight sets to Sarah Cerebes Tormo. A decent run for Eugenie Bouchard, though. What, what? I mean, let's just move past the fact that there are certain sects of society obsessed with Eugenie Bouchard because she's vaguely good looking. You know, what I like to think of as Anna Kornikova syndrome. Um, as a tennis player, what has been holding her back? And I, who, who wants to jump in on Eugenie Bouchard first? I'll go if you want. Yeah, basically, Bouchard's probably... The thing with Bouchard, when she first came on the scene, she played a very sort of specific way. She stands on the baseline, and she whacks it really hard and takes it really early. Mm. And that's what got her results pretty quick. She had a, she had a really good 12 months, didn't she? Didn't she make yeah. two two slam finals, was it? Or was slam it final in a semi, maybe? I can't remember if it was one or two. She lost to... Uh... She was in Wimbledon, wasn't she? And she lost was a bit of it in the final Wimbledon. And she lost yeah. to the French as well, didn't she? Or was that semi? I think they might have been semis. Did I can't you, remember now. She reached you, a few. She de- she I think she's her. definitely so, been three semis in the final or something. I'll run you through her 2014 year. Um, she got to the semi-finals of the French Open where she was beaten by Maria Sharapova in three sets. She got to the final of Wimbledon where she was beaten by Petra Kvitova, um, albeit extremely comprehensively. Um, and she got to the last 16 of uh, the US Open as well and became like, she got herself up to number five in the world at one point. Um, so she Four, was yeah. one of the best players in the world and then tumbled outside yeah. the, the top 300. 
So basically, semis of Australia as well. Yeah, yeah. So basically, yeah, what and and so she she came in and played that style, and it was a bit different, and she was very good at it. She times the ball well, um, and then as happens, opponents adapt to it. She's not so new on the tour. They get to see her more. They practice with her more. Well, don't practice with her too much, as any females don't practice with each other that much. Um, but she. The players became more aware of her and adapted their game styles to play her to find her weaknesses more, and she just never changed. She, she, it's, it's sort of a, a thing that gets discussed in tennis circles quite a lot, how she's the most stubborn tennis player that has ever played the game. She mm. still plays exactly the same way and won't adapt to the situation at all. She still wants to stand in exactly the same place, right on top of the baseline, and crack the ball as hard as she can every ball. And she's still mm. got the same weaknesses. Nothing's improved. Nothing's nothing's necessarily got any worse. But she's and that that's that sort of what 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 is ex, that's the best way to explain her career. She's still the exact same player she was in 2014. But everyone else has got better themselves and got better at playing her. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think she's an interesting player. I mean, obviously, she was amazing when she first came on the scene. I've seen her play amazing matches since she is one of those players who on a day can be a brilliant watch I mean I don't know if you're I think one of my favorite matches actually in his history was that one she played with Maria Sharapova and yeah I think, it was, I think Madrid wasn't it I mean that that was up there that was an astonishing match like just in terms of the intensity and the fire and yeah. you know, when Bouchard's up for it you know she's a character she'll speak she's interesting she's good she's good for the game in terms of People are interested in what she's doing and she doesn't shy away from an opinion. Um, I know she, she's been working with Renee Stubbs as well. Um, seems to have been a little bit of an upturn there. Nothing okay. major. I mean, it, look, you know, with someone like Bouchard, you're looking at her and being like, she's been up to number four in the world and she's down, the, you know, outside the top 100 now. So it, it's hard to say there's been a massive upturn. You know, a massive upturn for her will be getting back in the top 20. You know that that should be what she should be aiming for, but she's I think 27 now. Um, you know, I, I'd like to hope she's mature and can go on and do it. But as Calvin said, there's not been the improvement. Other players are better now. I think this next generation coming through are better than she ever was, really. Yeah. Um, or at least more versatile and have better rounded games. I think Bouchard's still capable of having a mad week or two, um, but. Can she do it consistently? Um, I'm not. I'm not sure, to be honest. Mm. Um, well, she's now up to 116 in the world, which is the highest she's been for a couple of years. Certainly since long before the pandemic, um, she's playing the the next half of the. Is it? I can't remember what they call this Mexican bit of the swing. You know how every single part of the tour now has a fun swing. So the uh, the South American clay bit that we just had, I believe, is the golden swing. And obviously, you've got the sunshine swing. So I don't know what this like. Is it the spring break swing, maybe, I'm going to call it? Guadalajara, Monterey. <laughs> just, just before the start of the natural season. Well, yeah, I guess it is the natural yeah. season. <laughs> well, it's sort of not pre- the natural season. The, the sort of preternatural pre- one. I was going to say, uh, the, 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 the Rio stuff should, should be sort of like the semi-natural season, shouldn't it, really? Because it is on that. <laughs> it's on natural surfaces, but in a natural part of the calendar. George, it's not it catching up. Let it, let it go, George. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not catching Stop up. trying to make better things, George. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, let, let's move on rapidly to something that's also not a thing, or at least I hope it's not. 
and it's Holger Rune's hairstyle. Um, if you haven't already seen it, uh, you can look it up on Twitter. Uh, he, he He's obviously a Danish tennis player who we've tried to talk about a lot and never quite got round to. I, I don't even know how to describe it, other than he clearly Rubbish. had too much hair <laughs> and too many elastic bands. Beyond that, and, and the only person to ask about this is Calvin Vettel, really. Uh, you know, as an expert on hair, um, <laughs> the thing what the thing what really winds me up about stuff like this is right that for people like myself who haven't had the privilege of hair for a sustained period, right? That the people who do have it can they they just shouldn't waste it. It's like hair is wasted on people like that. Like that's what you're going to do with it. Like there's no point you having it. So no, it, it was ridiculous. I don't, and the, you know, I'm sure it was some like it was his mum gave some sort of overly twee perky answer as to why he did it. But like you know, <laughs> we have it's locked down, so we couldn't do anything. And just get a bandana, get a bandana, <laughs> a headband. You know, be on board. And, she's all right, didn't it? She I said he managed she, all right. But she said he can't play with caps and bands and stuff, so they had to come up with a way to keep the hair off his face, Calvin. And this was the obvious right. solution, please. Right? Okay. Yeah, he can't play with <laughs> can't play with a cap, or he's like you know somebody who's we're, we're thinking may make the top five in the world at some stage. He can't play with a cap or a headband. Well, this, this is the same bloke who's this is the same bloke who's apparently going to beat Rafael Nadal's French Open record. So you know, he, he doesn't mm. sound like it needs to be adaptable too much. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, he maybe does, if you ask me. Uh, he did beat uh, Benoit Paire, though, which is kind of funny for a man, you know, it's maybe the most groomed face in tennis, yeah. the most expensively <laughs> groomed face in tennis, against the least groomed head in tennis. Uh, but the head won 6 2, 6 3 to win the Chile Open. Uh, a big, you know, a big step for, for any young man to go and win a title like that. Uh, okay, beating uh, Benoit Paire isn't the greatest achievement in the world because he doesn't appear to care that much about tennis, and we'll come on to that briefly. But I want to celebrate the victory rather than the grumpy defeated. Because he's only 17. George, I know there's been a lot of talk about him. He's obviously got massive ambitions. He's been at Muratoglu for the last five years, I think. Can you tell us a bit more about him? I can tell you he's very highly rated. I can tell you he's very ambitious. I mean, I, I was reading through quotes from him last week after we'd had a little bit of a chat about him. And uh, I mean, I admire the confidence. He he says his aim in his career is to surpass Rafael Nadal's total number of French Open titles, which I think is a, a fantastic thing to be aiming for. I mean, he probably needs to start winning one next year to do that, realistically. <laughs> um, yeah. But... You know, I, I think it, it, in a serious point, this is what will be interesting about tennis now is that the goalposts have shifted so far that, you know, players will be coming into their careers, you know, as young athletes do who think, I want to be the best. And the best is a very, very long way away. And you have to be almost perfect, you know, really sickly. OK, let's, let's say he can play till he's 37 or something. If he hasn't won the French Open by the time he's 20, that, that leaves virtually no margin for error. And you've got these other guys like Musetti, who are good clay court specialists coming through. You know, it's going to take a lot of substance to back up these words. And I, I, I am excited to see him. I, I watched a little bit of him this week. I think he's a good player. Um, he clearly fancies himself on clay, if nothing else. 
Um, and I think I think it's good to have these personalities. I, th- I was watching uh, Sky Sports before coming on this chat and was hearing them talk about Erling Haaland, for example, um, and how he's kind of got this arrogant streak to him and he you know, isn't afraid of, like, shouting in goalkeepers' faces. You know, we shouldn't be discouraging these young kids to to want to be these kind of arrogant fun guys because they're good for the sport. They're interesting to write about. Um, so I, I don't want to quash his ambition, but it's going to be a long way to get there, let's put it that way. Yeah, he's... Um... It's a, he won't. He won't break Raphael's French Open record. He, he won't. <laughs> he, he won't. He won't win ten percent of the amount of time uh, French Opens that the Dals won. Um, I don't think he's quite good. I think he's he's quite good. Um, I don't think we're not looking at a sort of a generational talent. I don't think um, from what I've seen in juniors, and I think what what other people think, he's just seen as quite good. And what's interesting when when sort of young players have these runs that. He has to win them, don't get me wrong. He has to win the matches. But certain players get these sort of... The draws kind of open up for them at a nice time so they can get a bit of confidence and go through. And that run that Rune went on last week, he sort of managed... It was quite a nice run, wasn't it, in an ATP 250? Um, And then he's gone and got Pear, who basically... I I mean, he's just binned it for for about the last six weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Last year is probably more accurate. (laughs) And I've just looked now on, I just Googled him, and he seems to have lost today. Um, or was that an old match? It says he's lost to Bayers. Um, yeah, no, that on, was today in a challenger in Santiago, yeah. Yeah, so, and he beat Bayers last week, didn't he? Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, so I think, you know, it's not, and if we think he's, he's how old is he now, George? Is he 18? 17. Turns 18 next month. And look, everyone has their own pathway. There's no question about that. But if we look at the top, the best players, by 17, they, they tend to be ranked higher than 312, yeah. which is where Runa is. If you looked at Federer the same age, Nadal, Nadal had won a, won a French already, hadn't he? At that age. Yeah, yeah, I guess he must. Yeah. Maybe 18, Djokovic, I think he won it. Djokovic at the same age. Djokovic at the same age was the... He was at the time, and I think he might still be, but I'm not sure. He's the only player to qualify and win a round in all four slams in the same calendar year. He was the only player to have ever done that at the time. Now, there's some caveats in that, because some players obviously get wild cards, so they don't get the opportunity to do it. Federer, Mm. I I doubt, ever ever had to qualify for a slam. He was given wild cards, Nadal the same. But Djokovic was was that player, and I don't think... I couldn't see... Runa doing that at, at this age this year. Hmm. I think the the other thing I was going to say is, I mean, if you look at other guys coming around him, I mean, is is Alcaraz younger, same age? I mean, pretty close. So, you know, Alcaraz you watch, is a much better player. Alcaraz is a better player, and he's younger. I, I, I would, Alcaraz is younger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that, so you know, that said, that doesn't mean Rune can't be very good. Um, I agree. I, <clears throat> absolutely no chance he's going to break Nadal's if, record. I, I don't think that's my neck on the line. If you sort of know your tennis, if you're a tennis fan and you've watched a fair bit of tennis and you just happen to come across Runa's course at a tournament, there's nothing there that would blow you away and think this is phenomenal. Whereas if you'd have seen Nadal at the same age, Murray at the same age, Federer at the same age, all those things, they would have really stood out. Whereas Runa, you'd just think this is quite a good player who does everything quite well. Yeah, with, but by, with by that... a funny coincidence, sorry, but just by a funny coincidence, comparing Alcaraz and Runa, 
at the year Runa won Junior French Open 2019, uh, Alcaraz was seeded in that tournament. He was knocked out in the first round by Toby Alex Kodat, who Runa then beat in the final. Um, in a sort of just the funny the way things work. But sorry, George, I interrupted. Oh, I've completely forgot what I was going to say. Now. I was, was going to kind of ask a bit of a question. That I, I, oh, I've remembered. I've remembered. Don't worry. Um, so if if we're saying that we don't think Runa <clears throat> is going to be as good as he think he is, which I don't think that is that outrageous a, a claim given kind of milestones. How damaging is it for a young player to be setting the sights that high and then going into a career where that's incredibly unlikely? Um. I don't think it's necessarily that damaging. I think, you know, it's for something like that, it's, I mean, it's such a ridiculous claim, isn't it? I'm going <laughs> to win 21 French Opens. <laughs> it's like, I don't think that, if, well, put it this way, if, if Runa doesn't win 21 French Opens, I don't think it's because he set his expectations it, so high to go and do it. Is it he's only got to get a 15, to be fair, Calvin. It's not quite 21. Of course, yeah, yeah, fifteen. So yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, if he doesn't do that, yeah. no, I don't. I don't think it's. I mean, and that's one of the things he he's very very focused. That can't be denied. He's very focused, very single minded, and I think I mentioned last week he's obsessed with tennis as well, which isn't a given for young players at that age. I know some players now is is sort of the same age are struggling with sort of do they really want to be tennis players, mm-hmm. um, and that's definitely not a question that anyone would ever ask of Olga Runa. Mm. And it's a massive thing, as I think people really underestimate it, that because we're so used to, you know, the, the people like Nadal and Murray and Djokovic and Federer to a certain extent, but I just think about guys who hit 10,000 balls a day. Yeah. Um, you know, we take for granted that obsession with a sport, but actually yeah. when, when you are world number 300 and you are quite often going to weird parts of the world and, and having to, you know, grind it out a bit in tournaments in front of nobody, you do have to be really, really obsessed with the sport to want to keep doing that. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, a, a friend of mine pointed out a while ago, and I'm sort of, he's 100% correct, that tennis is probably the worst sport to be really good at. If you, <laughs> if you sort of take everything into account, that it's, yeah. it's not a great life, even right at the very top. Maybe at yeah. the very, very top it is, but even if you're, say, 30 in the world, it's not a great life. You're spending 30 weeks a year on the tour, sitting in a hotel room by yourself. Um, if, apart from anything else, if you're ranked 30, you're probably winning two matches, losing one on average week. So, uh, yeah, it's understandable why many people fall by the wayside. Well, on exactly that note, if you are ranked, well, 31 in the world, then your name is Benoit Pair. And he's been, <laughs> he's, been, he's been very, very, you know, forthright in his views this week. Uh, I think anyone who watched Benoit Pair in the ATP Cup in Australia will know that he has not enjoyed tennis in 2021. <laughs> I mean, I am absolutely amazed. Honestly, I remember watching him against, um, oh, he was, I think he played Fabio Fanini in the um, ATP Cup in front of nobody at 10 o'clock in the morning in Melbourne. And I've never seen two people try and lose a match against each other more. They were just <laughs> desperate not to be there. Um, and I, I, I really was surprised that Benoit Pair stayed, stayed on tour for another two months. But I, I mean, I think I, I don't actually. I think that might actually not be tennis. Anyone who sort of has a sort of vague understanding of Benoit Pair, <laughs> if, if, if the shutting of 
if the shutting of <laughs> nightclubs and bars was going to affect anybody, <laughs> <laughs> it would be Benoit Pair. So I don't think that's necessarily he just hates life at the minute. Not, yeah. Not well, let me okay. let me just let me just contextualise this because he said after he lost to Holgeroon in the final, um, he posted on Instagram, and I want to just kind of read out a couple of bits of it. He said, firstly, congratulations to Holger, who I appreciate a lot. Wish him good luck in his career. Secondly, a big thank you to my loved ones who sent me messages of support that made me feel really good. Thirdly, I'll speak from the ATP circuit that has become sad, boring and ridiculous. Uh, playing behind closed doors without any atmosphere is not why I play tennis. To stay at either at the hotel or in the tennis club, and I think that's what you're talking about, Calvin, or be banned from leaving under penalty of exclusion and fine, or is the pleasure of travelling. For me, playing tennis has become a tasteless profession. So yes, it takes me some time to adapt to this pseudo-ATP circuit. I will make the efforts to try just find just the joy of playing tennis again. I don't talk about the results. I'm going to play Acapulco in Miami after thinking a lot, and my goal will be just to have a smile on my face and like to hit a ball. Whether I win or lose, I don't care royally. I mean, to be honest, and I will rarely say this, I kind of sympathise with him. Yeah, you, you can for sure. And I mean, I think it'd be interesting to see when he gets to Miami, because Miami is fully open. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't be surprised if we see Benoit Pair making a run to the semis on the final <laughs> there. Like, game on. He's like a caged lion. <laughs> or he could go completely the other way. And then yeah. like, just enjoys himself too much. Yes, I was going to suggest it. It, it might be the uh, other way around there, but he, he reminds his. He put a thing on Twitter in the earlier this month where he kind of said, you know, just stuck a middle finger emoji up and showed his bank balance, <laughs> his career earnings. Well, it was yeah, his career earnings of eight point five million dollars. Yeah, I think the, the other player I've seen do that before was uh, Nicholas Almagro. That was my favourite <laughs> one, I think. Where I can't, I can't even remember the the context now but he was just asked a question in a press conference and he said well I've made 10 million quid in my career so you tell me if I'm bothered about losing this match or something along those lines I mean it's reminiscent um, of Bernard Tomic isn't it you know count my yes. kind of thing and it's it, yeah. it's not pretty it's not I, I, I do get it but partly because of what Benoit said there which is like you know it doesn't matter whether my hotel room is in Santiago or San Moritz you know it's very much the same sort of thing um, and I do sympathise with that, much as it's great that they're still able to earn money and, and, you know, carry out their dream. It's not a dream if you're in a hotel room all the time. Um, and also, on the flip side of things, if you you get a lot of abuse on social media just for doing your job or for losing because someone had a tenner on you to win or, you know, you get endless abuse and people expecting you to do something that you don't want to do or don't need to do. I don't blame you for having a pop back. Yeah, I think as well that... Sorry, George, do you want to go on? No, 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 no. Go on, go on. No, I, I think as well, this is on, on a sort of wider sort of issue with, with sport in general at the minute, I have a big sort of thing about elite-level sport is is where the players can perform in front of crowds under the biggest pressure. And some players thrive under that, and I'm not saying... I think Pear probably doesn't. He's not, he doesn't handle pressure great, to be honest. But in general... Um, I think it's sort of we're getting a sort of artificial sport at the minute in all sports that we're not factoring in that crowd effect. I guess we did a bit in the Australian Open, but um, but since then we're not. So you have to wonder what what are we really getting? And yeah, I can fully understand where Pear's coming from. Hmm. I mean, it, pe- and pe- in, sorry, sorry, just 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 kind of 
add to that, it's been interesting. Jason Roy was speaking today, the England cricketer, saying he basically hadn't scored a run for a year. And then he went to Australia and played in the Big Bash. And um, he, he basically just just found it. There were 30,000 people in the stadium and he all of a sudden found his way to bat. And now he's in India and playing in front of thousands of people and he's scoring runs again. It, it does make a difference. Sadly, in India, they just had an outbreak of COVID in Gujarat and they're now banning fans from all the remaining games. So he, maybe he'll stop scoring runs again. But um, it's just interesting to see the different ways that different players react to it. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd probably compare him a little bit to Monfils in a way in terms of he. I think there is an element of entertainment to Pear's game that he does thrive off. I'm not saying he's going out to just muck around and have fun, but if you watch his game, I mean, there's a lot of outrageous drop shots. He he is someone who does enjoy the showmanship side of things. He does also enjoy the... Um, <laughs> the the uh, side of life? The, yeah, the, the fun side of life. And, and he can have a... Com- a bit of a head loss, etc. But uh, yeah, he's uh, he, he's someone I think who you know it's never been about big pressure winning for him, but there's definitely been some enjoyment in fans. Um, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Sorry, George. I know you're going to have to run. I can see things are happening, and you're going to have to run. But fortunately, we've actually hit the hour mark on uh, as perfectly as we possibly can. Uh, and we've covered a lot of ground, so that's been great as well. Um, there's plenty going on over the next week. I know there's not a lot of women's tennis. There's a 500 event in St. Petersburg, but it's not got great entry. Um, but we'll obviously be sort of counting down to Miami, which is coming up with a, a pretty decent lineup there as well. I know Andy Murray's heading out to that to get away from childcare duties, among other things. Um, we've got a men's tournament in Dubai where the courts are super fast. Got a men's tournament in Acapulco as well. So there's loads of tennis going on. Please do come back next week. Um, if you're listening, uh, make sure you give us a follow on Twitter, at Love Tennis Pod. Make sure you leave us a review wherever you're listening. Um, and please do come back next week. We'll be here, as always. Cheers, lads. Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.